Hello and welcome to the Spectator's Americano podcast, a series of discussions about American politics and the Trump presidency in 2017. I'm Freddie Gray and I'm deputy editor of The Spectator. Today we're going to be talking about the protest movement against Donald Trump and I'm joined by John Neffel, who is a Rolling Stone journalist who has been covering the protests quite closely. John, we've only had less than a month of the Trump presidency and already we've seen a lot of protesting. Here in Britain, we get the impression that the next four years of America might just be lots and lots of protests. Is that fair or do you not even think we're going to have four years of Donald Trump? Yeah, well, what's what's interesting is that I've found colleagues and activists who I who I speak with, colleagues in the press and activists, have, have gotten used to saying things like four years or however long this lasts. There seems to be a, a sort of just general uh, skepticism about whether the Trump administration really has four years in it. And so I think that sometimes people say that partly in jest. And sometimes I think when people say that, they mean that the Trump inner circle kind of feels like a a mafioso ring. And uh, in some ways, it feels like it's a criminal enterprise just waiting for uh, a shoe to drop. And that may be premature to say that, but it, it sort of has that conspiratorial feel to it. And as far as the turnout, one of the phrases that people have started using lately, which I think actually actually captures the mood pretty well, is protest is the new brunch, right? So people are getting used to dedicating time on Sunday or Saturday to going out to rallies, going to uh, local organizations that otherwise they would have sat around having huevos rancheros and mimosas with friends. And now a lot of those friends, they're still with the same people, but instead they're at a rally or a protest. And so I think for for the immediate future, we can expect to see a pretty sustained level of presence in the streets, as well as sustained phone calls to representatives, which is not as visible a form of protest, but we're really seeing that at very high levels right now. And do you think you talk about uh, sort of uh, comparing it to brunch? Do you think that might be a problem with the Trump protests and that it feels sometimes it feels not like actual political anger and more like a, a sort of lifestyle choice? Well, I think that, that maybe there is some of that, but I think that what we're seeing right now is really a flowering of a lot of different forms of protest, right? Whether that's a kind of casual, you know, lifestyle, if you want to call it that person going out to to hold up a sign for a couple of hours on, on Sunday, we're certainly seeing that. But like I said, we're also seeing people calling representatives much more than we have on the the left in the past, as well as, you know, sometimes more confrontational tactics that like we saw at Berkeley. Yes. And so I think that that a lot of people are are getting involved in different ways. And, you know, things like the Democratic Socialists of America, the DSA, they are at all these protests. They are trying to sign people up. People are who go to these who go to these actions are legitimately talking about running primaries against Democrats in in two years. And so so I think that it would be a little bit overly dismissive to say that this is just somebody, you know, showing up and then going home and not really doing anything else. I think that there really is sustained uh, engagement from a lot of people. Yes, and uh, there's certainly genuine anger. You mentioned the Barclay protests. Uh, I I saw some in um, Washington on the day of the inauguration. There also seems to be an element within the protest movement, a sort of anarchist perhaps element, that actually are becoming quite pro-violence or at least pro-social disruption. 
Do you regard that as a healthy reaction to Trump or is that just madness? Well, I think that protest movements have, have often had at least a, a more confrontational element to them. That was something that we saw to a certain extent during Occupy, more on the West Coast in the U.S. than the East Coast, especially places like Oakland. But you're right in saying that certainly I was there at, at uh, J20 as well, and that was a very, you know, that was a, a march. There was one march during the day that sort of bled into others that was, there was a lot of property destruction. Mm. And and I certainly wouldn't characterize that as as madness. I think that especially when we see the shutdown of the Milo Yiannopoulos speech at Berkeley, mm. that, that what, what people are reacting to is, I think, a, a very real fear of rising fascist sentiment and tide in the United States and a real fear that white ethno-chauvinist policies that were once considered really fringe are becoming increasingly mainstreamed in large part through Trump, but not but not solely through Trump. I think that the reaction to that mainstreaming and the reaction to the fear of white supremacist policies going from really kind of taboo to say to being actually rewarded by many in the mainstream, I think that people are reacting to that and are legitimately and justifiably afraid of it and want to want to stop that before it spreads more than it already has. And you think the visa ban is an example of white ethno-nationalism creeping into American policy? Sure, absolutely. There's no other way to understand it, especially from Trump's own uh, advisors like Rudy Giuliani and Trump's own mouth. Whether it's... But You're referring there to Rudy Giuliani saying that after Trump announced the Muslim ban, he then asked Giuliani to put together a committee of people to look into how they could apply this so-called Muslim ban. Is that, is that what you're referring to? Yeah, yeah, exactly. And, and Giuliani mentioned that on... Uh, a Fox News program saying that that he was tasked with figuring out a way to do this in a way that was legal, but that clearly achieved the end of of a de facto ban on on Muslims from from seven countries. So, so I mean, the very fact that a Muslim ban wouldn't have been legal and therefore they didn't do it suggests that it it's not actually happening, doesn't it? Um, no, I th- I think that what's happening is that the Trump administration has clearly signaled that it wants Trump, Trump, the candidate clearly signaled that he wanted to impose a Muslim ban. He then walked that back by referring to essentially the same policy as extreme vetting. And I think that what we're seeing is a legalese argument that's trying to obfuscate the real policy here. And I think that it's, I think it's, it's plain to anyone who's been paying attention to Trump's rhetoric, that this is clearly by design intended to keep Muslims out, regardless of whatever current justification there is for it. Yeah. And who do you think is actually a white nationalist in Team Trump? I think that Steve Bannon has done more to promote the white nationalist resurgence than just about any other figure in recent U.S. politics. And I think that when you take when you when you take his policies and meld them with Trump's rhetoric you get stuff like calling for the deportation of 11 million people and that to me sounds a lot like an expulsionary ethno chauvinist platform and so i think that i think that it's fair to to categorize Bannon at least as as a friend to the white nationalist movement if he himself would you know perhaps take issue with that characterization 
Yes, I mean, I can see that uh, certainly in regard to the Muslim world, Bannon's worldview is bordering on hysterical. And, and then I suppose when you bring immigration and, and Hispanics into it, you could argue the same point. But I mean, I, I don't see anyone in the Trump administration being anti-black or anti-gay. Do you? Oh, absolutely. As far as anti-black racism, Trump himself has long trafficked in anti-black racism, dating back to lawsuits from decades ago where he declined to rent to to black people in any in in several of his buildings. That was, uh, and and he also that was his father's company. Yeah, sure. And Trump also <laughs> took out a uh, full page ad calling for the execution of the Central Park Five, even after they were acquitted and the city gave gave those five uh, who were uh, young black teens at the time a massive settlement because of uh, wrongful arrest and wrongful conviction, Trump has continued to call for their imprisonment. Mm. And I think that when you look at the way that, that, that Trump has coded a lot of his his statements, it's it's clear that, that he wants to protect the welfare state, or at least he has made some, some noise about uh, protecting the welfare state for white Americans, but that blacks would be much less likely to, to receive that kind of safety net. And so I think that, that, that that's as far as that, that there is anti-black racism coming from the White House, no question. As far as anti-LGBT stuff, it hasn't been quite as clear, although there were rumors of a draft executive order that, that may have now been scuttled that would have removed some uh, protections from LGBT federal uh, workers. But, but right now, you know, we have not seen that kind of clear on attack. Mm. But there are all sorts of, of sort of sideways ways that we do see attacks on LGBT people, namely under a euphemism of, of religious liberty. And the, the Trump, Trump team has been very happy to pursue, uh, to at least talk about philosophy of allowing uh, public businesses to discriminate against uh, LGBTQ people under the pretext of religious liberty, which is really a, has a, a, a tenuous but unfortunate history in our legal system here. And so I think that that's that's one of the ways that we're seeing the the, the anti-gay sentiment come out in a in a less bombastic way. So so with the uh, visa ban, when they started off in the preamble saying you know we do not want to discriminate ever on grounds of sexual orientation, making that quite explicit, you think that's sort of a cover to be racist or or Islamophobic in in other ways? Yeah, I mean I th- I think that that if you can paper over some of your real intentions, you have a, a greater chance of surviving a court challenge, which is what we'll see, you know, how that plays out in the next couple of hours or, you know, day or two most acutely. And then ultimately, I think that this is going to go to the Supreme Court and and become one of the most important court decisions, probably, of the Trump administration. Mm. And so somebody like, like a Breitbart figure like Milo Yiannopoulos, who we mentioned the protests earlier, he would be a kind of a gay rights fig leaf for the darker Trump agenda. Is that what you're saying? Yeah, I mean, I, th- I think that when it comes to him specifically, he's, he's a, a provocateur and is very good at... <laughs> Uh, getting his name in the press and selling books and yeah, serving essentially as I think a fig leaf is is not a bad way to put it. 
And and I think that that his you know sort of mere presence in Breitbart world, and because of that, you know, it's adjacent to the White House. I don't think that that should discount any of the uh, really troubling rhetoric that we're hearing about, you know, possibly pushing religious liberty exceptions to uh, to to non-discrimination further. Yeah. What do you think the activist left is going to do if Trump proves to be successful, politically successful? I think that that is a very good question, and it's very much open right now. I think that a lot of people have been kind of terrified that Trump would just ignore any federal judge's orders um, overturning the the Muslim ban. As of right now, that hasn't happened, but I, I think that that is very much an open question. And in terms of if some of these policies are I think I think for the left the nightmare scenario is that say the Muslim ban goes to the Supreme Court and the Supreme Court rules in Trump's favor. At that point, I think that the left is going to have a very difficult time conceiving of any mechanism to to combat that in the near term. And probably you know that's something that that can maybe only be changed at the ballot box and and even then only by retaking at least one of the two uh, houses of Congress. And so to get to that point, it's going to, you know, we're going to have to see a lot of political organizing looking looking down the long term, because I think that some of these policies may may get the color of law behind them. And, and I think that that's going to be really hard to dislodge them if, if, if and when that happens. And do you think this all could have been beautifully different if Bernie Sanders had been nominated instead of Hillary Clinton? I think that Sanders would have defeated Trump. I think that the Democrats really made a, a tactical error in uh, in not reading the moment. I mean, it was clear that the country was in a sort of populist insurgent mood. And I think that the, the kind of neoliberal consensus that Clinton represents, it sells well amongst people who are well-to-do, but amongst people who, uh, who are less well-to-do, it's a really really hard sell. And I think that I think that she was just a very, very flawed candidate for that reason. Yes. John, thank you very much for talking to us. It was very interesting indeed. Just a reminder that you can subscribe to this podcast anytime on iTunes. So please do. 